Well, good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. Good to see you guys. Woo. So if you're a, a regular here, a member, a guest, we're so glad to be together. If you're online live with us right now, so grateful that you're here together with us. Hey, uh, there have been times in my life where I have been mildly stranded and needed help from someone else. You know, flat tire on a long bike ride, um, you know, broken car on the side of the road, locked out of my house, um, you know, stuck in an airport for hours where I just depended and relied on someone else who cared about me or cared about the situation to do something about it. And I'm sure a lot of you have had similar events in your life where you've been stranded, you know, somewhere and you really relied on someone else to uh, care for you or, you know, remedy the situation. And we, we look at our uh, history of news over the decades and centuries even, and uh, we look at even some of the movies we watch and the whole theme of search and rescue is very clear. Whether it's the search and rescue team scouring a mountainside looking for lost people that have been missing for days, or whether it's the brave Coast Guard cutter that's going out facing the big storm to rescue the couple capsized by their sailboat, or even the elite military teams going into hostile territory to rescue hostages or other soldiers, uh, we see these stories, these epic, heroic stories of people being rescued. And uh, there was a story that, uh, like that that captured really the heart of the world about 18 months ago. Some of you may have remembered it. It was the story of the wild boar soccer team in Thailand. And some of you might remember this moment where you had uh, 12 boys plus their 25-year-old soccer coach who, after practice, uh, went up to a cave that's popular in northern Thailand called Tom Luang, and uh, they parked their bikes and then hiked a mile and a half into this cave system. Uh, nine different caverns deep, uh, twists and turns and snags and all this kind of stuff. Well, the rain started coming and flooded the caves. And so this entire team got trapped a mile and a half into this cave system in northern Thailand. And once they were discovered missing and their bikes were found outside the cave, uh, the dire situation became very clear. And pretty soon, phones were going off around the world, and an elite diving team was formed from uh, divers from around the world who had this skill set to go in and rescue these boys. But those divers had to encounter a lot of barriers. Uh, they had uh, muddy conditions and wet conditions. The cave was filled with cold, murky water, no visibility. Uh, you had to, to navigate the, navern, the, the caverns of the cave with all the, the slagmites and slactites and all the things that were catching on cables. Uh, you had a current of water working against you to try to go and get these boys, and you didn't even know if they were alive. And so these divers worked for hours and for days to go after these boys. The boys were found 10 days later in the back of the cave. They were all alive, but they hadn't eaten for 10 days. They hadn't drank for 10 days, and they were in a pitch black, dark cavern. What would you be thinking if that was you? You're going to die. You're going to die. So imagine what it must have looked like for one of those boys to see a light emerge from the water into that darkness and light up the darkness to come rescue you. What must have it felt like to be one of those divers, right? To all of a sudden submerge in water and see 13 people alive and, 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 and getting to them just in time. Now, the conditions were so severe, the barriers weren't done. In order to get those boys out, they figured out what they had to do was actually sedate the boys put them in a wetsuit with a full mask, and then they had to strap them down to these fancy you know, um, rigs that they made and slowly work them out of the caves one at a time. 
It was a massive undertaking. One of the divers said, the chance of success of this mission is zero. We think we're going to be pulling out dead kids. We just don't know if we can do this. But the whole mission was a success, and those boys were rescued. You know, over and over and over again, we see these kinds of stories. We hear about these kinds of stories. But as amazing and as heroic and as inspirational as those stories are, they all pale in comparison to the search and rescue mission. Jesus Christ said, I have come to seek and to save the lost. See, these boys' lives were in danger, but you know what's worse than a death? It's what's going to happen in the afterlife, heaven or hell. And so these boys were granted more years of their life, but what if they had died? What happens when anyone dies who doesn't have a relationship with God that hasn't been restored back into relationship with their creator? And so Jesus Christ came. God looked at fallen humanity. He looked at the landscape of fallen humanity, and we were stuck in our darkness. We were stuck in our sin. We had no ability to get our way out of it. You can't work yourself into forgiveness from God. You, you can't go to church enough. You can't be a good enough person. We're stuck, and God sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to die on the cross for our sins and to in the grave to rescue us. And then what he does is he invites us into his search and rescue team so that we can go out and help rescue others. And when Jesus Christ came into your life, it was like that light coming into the darkness and flooding your cavern in your desperate situation. And when you get to participate in the search and rescue team of Jesus, and you get to be used by God to go and reach someone else who's lost and dying, it's like those divers just show up and you find someone alive and you get to help take them out. That, that's what happens. And so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at the search and rescue theme for a few months. We spent some significant time in the book of Luke last year, and we're going to continue to spend more time in the book of Luke in 2020. And my hope for us as a church, as a family, and for those of us even as guests, is that as we look closely at these encounters where Jesus is living out his search and rescue mission first, it will stir up great gratitude in our life for how the compassion of Jesus, what drove those divers, what drove that team to rescue those boys was compassion and urgency. In the same way, what drove Jesus to come here to die on the cross was compassion for you, compassion for me, and an urgency for our souls to be saved and for humanity to be rescued. And so hopefully that same urgency and that same compassion will be stirred in us to go out and rescue and reach others with the good news of Jesus Christ. Now what I want to do is I want us to turn back into the book of Luke. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 7 today. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 7 or your Bible uh, apps on your devices. By the way, if you don't have a Bible and you're here, just go ahead and on the way out, there's a table right here on the other side of this wall. There's some free Bibles. Take one if you need one. Uh, That's yours. It's a gift. Happy New Year. Um, But last week, our founding pastor, Rick Duncan, really gave us a a 30,000-foot view of the book of Luke. And he showed us that Jesus had a leadership multiplication strategy. He had a gospel sowing strategy and a geographical saturation strategy. He kind of gave us the bird's eye view of that. Now we're going to zoom in and look at how that strategy is played out encounter by encounter uh, with people that Jesus is interacting with over the months to come. So let's pray and then dive into the passage. Well, Lord, we're so grateful for your word. There's a lot of opinions, there's a lot of voices out there, but nothing is um, perfect except for your word. Nothing is flawless except for your voice. And so thank you that you captured your word. Thank you that you gave us the Bible and that uh, our opinion and the world's opinion and cultural influences don't have the weight of the truth of your word. And Lord, we would ask you to guide us with that truth today. 
Lord, no matter what our background is, whether we've been followers of Christ for years or whether this is our first time stepping foot in a church or watching online, just pray that you should use your word to pierce our heart and to give us transformation and application, Lord, uh, to live for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Well said. Luke 7, chapter 1, says this. After he, that would be Jesus, had finished all his sayings. Uh, we're stepping back a couple thousand years. Uh, this moment in history was right after Jesus gave what's called the Sermon on the Plain. He just spoke to, to thousands of people. This is the moment we're entering into. So after he had finished all these sayings in the hearing of all the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him, by the centurion. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, another come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. What an amazing encounter. Uh, let's just go to where this event's taking place. This is the town of Capernaum. We've talked about Capernaum before. I want to give uh, a, a refresher for those of you who are familiar and orientate those of you who are not. Capernaum is a town on the north side of the Sea of Galilee in Israel. It is the headquarters of Jesus during his ministry. He did more miracles in Capernaum than anywhere else. He taught frequently in Capernaum. Five of the 12 disciples are from the area of Capernaum. Uh, this town is nicknamed, the book of Matthew, the city of Jesus. This was his city. So this was his headquarters. And, and he, he launched from this area. Now, this is a ge geographically strategic location. If you look at the map, you'll see that Capernaum was next to something called the Via Maris. The Via Maris is that red line. The Via Maris was a trade route. And the trade route went as far south as Egypt as far as north as Turkey. So if you're trying to trade goods and all those things, you're using the Via Maris. It's the main trade route. And so Capernaum is right next to this trade route. Isn't it cool God is very intentional about what he does? Sometimes you read the Bible and go, it says the news of him spread quickly. How did the news of Jesus spread quickly? The trade routes. The trade routes were the Twitter of the day, right? And so the Via Maris was, was the dominant trade route. It's one of many. You had King's Highway a little bit further east. And you had all these other trade routes splinter off. And so when Jesus did his miracles and Jesus did his teaching and people encountered those, they'd get back on those trade routes and then start heading home. It was kind of like the 77 or the, the 71 of the day, right? Or, the, or maybe like the 80. And so this is where Capernaum was in its day. And so that's why the gospel was easily uh, spread north, south, east, and west because of the trade routes. Now, because of the importance of this trade route, and because Israel was under Roman governance, then this trade route needed to be supervised well. And so there was a detachment um, of Roman soldiers there in Capernaum. That's why the centurion's there. That's how this guy got there. Now, he's a centurion, which means he's over 100 soldiers. It's a very prestigious rank. But what we learn about the centurion as we see this passage unfold is this was no average centurion. 
Now, there was a lot of hostility between the Jews and the Romans, right? I mean, who wants to be occupied and controlled, right? And, and, and so the Romans looked down on the Jews, and the Jews you know, were oppressed by the Romans. So there was bad blood between them. But you see here, there was a goodwill relationship between this centurion and the Jews. The fact that he could go to the Jewish elders and say, hey, can you go tell Jesus this for me? And for them to come to Jesus and say, hey, look, uh, we've been sent with a message for you. Th- this Roman centurion uh, is a great guy. I mean, look at the passage. It says he loves our nation. He, he doesn't, he's not a hater. He's not hating on us. He, he loves us. He interacts with us well. In fact, he built us our synagogue, which is amazing because some of you have been there. Some of you will probably go there. The synagogue in Capernaum, and this is uh, ruins from the 4th century synagogue, but underneath this, and I've showed this picture before, underneath the 4th century synagogue ruins is the black uh, stone, which is the foundation stone of the synagogue from the time of Jesus. The centurion made that happen. The centurion funded that. He helped provide the labor for that. He built that synagogue, this house of worship for the Jews. And so this is a real place. You know, some of us were just there four months ago, you know, studying this right, right then and there, looking at this, all this taking place. And so this centurion has a goodwill relationship, and the Jews are saying, can you make this happen for this man? Well, obviously, what we see here is that the centurion had a servant, a slave, that he cared for. Like, that says a lot. Because a lot of times slaves were just tools, right? They were just tools to be used. There was no care and love. But this centurion cared deeply for his servant. He was obviously near death. Some disease, some fever, some sickness was going to take this servant out. And the centurion, this, check this out. This is, this is very important. The centurion had heard about Jesus. In fact, because he was so close to Capernaum, he might have even seen Jesus or the crowd off in a distance. So he was with an earshot. He's within visual range of Jesus and his ministry. But he heard about Jesus, but he probably had no interest in him until there was a need that Jesus could do something about. And in that moment, he called out for Christ to help. Isn't that some of our stories, right? You heard about Jesus, you heard about Christianity, you heard about the Bible. You didn't have need for it. I don't need the Bible. I don't need God. I don't need Jesus. I got this. I've got this. I'm educated. I've got master's degrees and PhDs. I've got a good bank account. I'm liked by people. I like my job. I don't need Jesus until that thing came into your life, right? Until all of a sudden you had everything you ever wanted and you were still empty. Hmm. Maybe I need to look into this Jesus, right? Or maybe it was that crisis or that tragedy or that sickness or the diagnosis or whatever it was. And then all of a sudden, all those annoying Christians that you've interacted with over the years, and those Christians always talking about the peace they have in Jesus, those Christians always talk about the joy that they have because of the Lord and forgiveness of sins and the arrogant little claim that they can get to go to heaven because they believe in Jesus. All of a sudden, all that is flipped upside down when you have a need that's provoked. I've heard many stories in this church about you and some of your friends and family that you pray for, no interest in Jesus until that thing comes into the life. And all of a sudden, you're very interested in who Jesus is and what Jesus has for you. Isn't this so true of our story? This is what's happening for the centurion in this moment. So he calls out to Jesus. He says, can you go get Jesus? I've heard he can heal people. Maybe, just maybe, he'll heal my servant. Here's what happens. When these Jews come to Jesus and they ask him to go, you have to understand something. All these barriers pop up. Jesus has no business even entertaining the idea of going to the centurion's home. Jesus is Jewish. He lives by Jewish custom, lives by Jewish code. If you understand Judaism and the law and the traditions, the the Roman soldier is a Gentile. He's a pagan. He's a non-Jew. Not only that, he's a man of war. 
He's killed people. He's overseen the killing of people. He's an oppressor of the Jewish people. Not only that, as a Gentile, you're not even supposed to go into the house. We even see the apostle Peter speak to this. In Acts 10, 28, Peter says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And so all these barriers are going up. Like, he shouldn't be going to the house of a Roman because he's Roman. There's, there's cultural barriers. There's religious barriers. There's political barriers because of the loyalties of where they're at. Uh, there's moral barriers. The Romans and their uh, comfortability with immorality and the, the pious Judaism that was in contrast. There were all these barriers that should have made Jesus go like, yeah, sorry, I can't do that. But what did Jesus do? He started to go. He, he turned and pivoted and started making his way to the centurion's home. You know what's happening here? Jesus has a compassion inside of him that's been sparked. And now it's leading him to break down whatever barriers are in the way to get to someone in need. Jesus didn't get to everybody in need, but he got to a lot. Now this guy's next on the list. The compassion of Jesus was, was sparked. And now he's going to drive through whatever barriers are in the way. He's going to make his way to this centurion. And he's going to heal his servant. Now, before moving on, I think there's a couple other observations in this encounter we just really need to, to make sure we look at. I want you to look at the contrast between uh, the Jews' mindset that were basically the message, the message guys and the centurion's attitude. Now, notice the, the Jewish people, you go back to this text, right? Go back to the text. Okay, if you go back to the text, when, when, when they send him, look at verse 4. It says, they came to Jesus. They pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is, what's the word? Worthy. He's worthy for you to do this. He's, he's, he treats our people good. He, he built our house of worship. He has done certain behaviors and actions that are worthy and deserving of you to act now on his behalf. But then if you look at what happens when the centurion hears, Jesus is coming to my home, he's going, wait a minute. <laughs> he really shouldn't be coming in here. Um, I know how all this works. Look how the centurion, now the centurion sends out some friends to intercept him. And look what the centurion says in verse um, 6. He says, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am what? Not. not worthy. You see what just happened? The Jews are going, hey, this guy's worthy for you to do something. And the centurion's going, I'm not worthy. So here, here's what you have playing out. There's a mindset that's being really demonstrated by the Jewish people in this story that if you do good things, then you deserve God to act on your behalf. We still see that played out. If I'm a good person, if I go to church, if I do more religious things than the average person, if, if I stay on top of my religious game, then somehow I deserve, I'm worthy of God's blessing, forgiveness, heaven, etc. right? I, I've, I've invoked it somehow. We all know as Christians, uh, we don't do good uh, to be loved by Jesus. We do good because we love Jesus, right? And so you've got this works mindset being played out here. Like, oh, look, he, he did all these great things, so he, he deserves it. But what's, how does the centurion see himself? Jesus is showing up. He, he says, no, 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 no. Get, get out this. Look, I am not worthy. Dude, I'm so dirty. I don't have this works. You, you can't come into my house. I've got my highlight reel of all my messy stuff going on. Like, you can't come in here. And I love this. He invokes his understanding and experience of authority. He goes, look, I'm a commander. I know how this works. I tell my servant to do this. He goes and does it. If I tell this guy to come, I tell that guy to go. That's what they do. And he demonstrates faith in this moment. He says, all you have to do is say the word. 
You don't even need to touch my servant. You don't even need to lay eyes on him. You're supernatural. You're divine. I've heard what you can do. You just speak it and it will happen. And see how Jesus responds to that? He stops and looks around at the crowd. And he goes, I have never heard of this kind of faith anywhere I've encountered in Israel so far. That was a backhanded compliment, by the way, just so you know that. All the Jews were like, excuse me? <laughs> right? There's only one other place. There's, there's only two places in the Gospels where it says that Jesus marveled. This is one of them. The other is a time when Jesus marveled at the lack of faith that people had. So you've got the one time in all the four Gospels that record the ministry of Jesus where he was amazed by someone's faith. And because of that faith, he acted because of the faith. Guys, please never revert back to thinking we can invoke God's goodness by our good works. That we can invoke God's forgiveness in heaven. It's, it's only by faith in who Jesus is and what he does. And what you also see with the centurion is, is that humility. They're like, I'm not worthy. Humility and faith are paired together. Right? Hebrews 11, 6, 6. Unless one has faith, it's impossible to what? Please God. You have to have faith. Hebrews eleven six. You have to have faith to please God. And so what happens is the centurion demonstrates faith. Humility is fertile soil for faith to grow. So the way that should encourage you is if you're a Christian, if you've come to a place in your life where you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, you know what started first? Your humility. You came to a place of brokenness. We said, I don't have this. I'm the one stuck in a cave. I can't get out. I need someone to rescue me. I can't work my way out of here. Someone else has to come and get me, and I've identified this Jesus. And that humility led to the faith in Jesus' death on the cross. The humility launched you into the place of trusting his resurrection. It began with humility, which means the flip is if you have not come to Jesus yet, or you've been keeping Jesus at arm's length, maybe it's not a faith issue. Your first issue to wrestle with is humility. Maybe your arrogance and your pride have prevented you and blocked you from receiving the goodness and the grace of Jesus in your life. So a great place to start, say, God, humble me. I'll tell you what, you're going to be humbled one way or the other, willingly or unwillingly. <laughs> and so we see this in the life of the centurion. But ultimately, when we look at this whole encounter, here's what we see. The compassion of Jesus drove him. It was that compassion that drove him to break the barriers on his search and rescue mission. Now, he's not done. Let's move to another encounter. Continue on with me in Luke chapter 7. Look at verse 11. Soon afterward, right? Probably a few days. Who knows how long? Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a considerable, a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier. And the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us. God has visited his people, and this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Any idea how that might have happened, by the way? Trade routes and the off-roads from the trade routes. So here's what we see. Jesus goes to a town called Nain. Nain is about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum. 
And it's a reminder that Jesus wasn't just chilling in Capernaum going like, well, I'm here, Savior, Messiah, King, Lord, King of the universe. If you need help, I'm hanging out in Capernaum. He was on a search and rescue mission. He went. He wasn't a diver at the front of the cave going, hey, boys, we're right here. We can help you out. He, he went and he was going. So he went to Nain. And then you have to understand this picture. Like, please lock this picture in. Jesus, it says here, has a great crowd. Hundreds, thousands, who knows how many. Probably, probably two, three, four thousand people probably following him. What's the tone of that crowd? Energetic, excited. We get to hear Jesus teach. We get to see him do great miracles. This is an amazing field trip. Woo, right? And so they're like all happy and they're, they're coming to Nain. There's a, another large crowd coming out. So it's a considerable sized crowd. Hundreds, we don't know, coming out of the city. Now, quick cultural touch point. Whenever someone dies in Jewish culture and custom, they have to be buried outside the city. So the cemetery is outside the city. That's why they're leaving the city. It's a, it's a walled city. The gate's this big walled structure, right? They're coming through this. So they're taking them outside the city. And the, even to this day in Israel, you bury your deceased loved ones on the day they die. You don't wait. And so this body is hours after death. And so you've got this energetic, happy crowd, massive crowd following Jesus. You have this other good-sized crowd coming out. It's a funeral procession, okay? So you've got people crying and mourning and weeping and there's sadness. I mean, can you imagine if you were in a funeral procession with a loved one, and like some cars merged into your funeral procession and we're like, woo, and honking and waving. You'd be like, come on, seriously? And so you have this, you have this crowd meeting outside the city, You've got happiness and joy meeting sadness and grief. You've got life meeting death. And they're about to collide. Who's going to win? What's going to happen? And what we see here, look at verse 13 with me. Look at verse 13. We look at verse 13. It says, when the Lord saw her, this widow, he had what? He had compassion on her. He had compassion on her. Look, this woman already lost her husband. All you ladies right now, imagine if me and your husband's gone. Just like right now, done, gone. They die right here. How you gonna feel? Some of you are going, like, I don't know, that might be a good. <laughs> <laughs> How would you feel? What if you had one child, an only son? Would you depend on that son to take care of you? In this culture, it did. Like the, the men were the breadwinners. They protected the family. They, they typically brought the income in. They, the, the husband's gone. Now the only son's on point. Now he's gone. What if your only child was a son and now you didn't have him either? How would you be? See, Jesus saw this widow and he saw the grief. And he probably knew the situation. No husband. Now I don't have my son. What's my future going to be like? And Jesus had compassion on her. And then, guess what? That compassion drove him to do something he shouldn't do. He's going to break barriers. He goes up to the beer. Let me be clear. This is B-I-E-R, not B-E-E-R, okay? <laughs> the person's not holding a beer, all right? It's a beer. A beer is a, basically a death stretcher. It's an open casket, if you will. And he walks up, and he touches it. Is he supposed to do that? No, because no, it's going to make him What? unclean. You can't do that. You're not supposed to do that. Numbers 19.11, whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean for seven days. You can't touch a dead body or something a dead body's touching. 
You can't, according to Jewish law and culture. Plus, as a rabbi, as a priest, as a holy man, there's an extra dose. Leviticus, Leviticus 21.11. He, the priest, shall not go to any dead bodies nor make himself unclean, even for his father or his mother. Jesus sees a grieving widow, a dead son, a grieving crowd, and his compassion is sparked. He doesn't care about the rules and obstacles at this point. He goes over, touches the casket, stops the procession, looks at the young man, and says, get up. Rise. And this is, this is so amazing. Here we are, January 5th, 2020. We're reading about Jesus calling a dead person to life. And we're like, oh, that's, that's interesting. Look, the guy was dead. And Jesus rose him back to life. Remember, great crowd following Jesus, thousands probably, significant crowd following the widow, some hundreds. You got all these people, they just watch this mind-blowing thing go down. What would you do? Exactly what they did. They freak out, fear fills them. They're like, okay, we got a prophet here. The prophets visited us. And if you're a Bible student, you know who they're thinking about, right? Any other widows have their sons raised from the dead? Back in 1 Kings, there was a prophet named Elijah, right? Shows up, heals a widow's dead son, comes to life. Uh, next story, 2 Kings, Elijah's protege, Elisha, also healed a, a woman's son, brought him back to life. They're thinking, this is like Elijah. This is like Elisha. A prophet's visited us. And then they say, God has visited his people. Bingo. Yes, he has. Jesus, God, and the flesh is among you. And he just placed this calling card. Who else can raise a dead person? And so Jesus is making it very clear who he is and what he's capable of. And then it says, word of him spread. The ancient Twittersphere started trending Jesus everywhere. But we come back down to this. It was this that we see here. It was his compassion. It was his compassion that drove him past the obstacles that were there and the labels and the, the traditions and the rules and the discomforts. He did, he, he, he did it with the centurion and he did it with the widow. And so here's what we need to really think about. Just as some level of compassion and urgency drove people to help you in the past when you were stranded and needed help, just as some level of compassion and urgency uh, was sparked in your heart to help someone you know and love who was stranded and needed help, that same compassion and urgency needs to be sparked in us. See, 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 Jesus came because he, he came to die on the cross because of the love of God, the compassion of God, looking at you where you were and your inability to be rescued on your own. And he came and his death on the cross rescued us. And that same compassion and that same drive should push us to push past whatever barriers are in our way of being a fruitful, faithful part of Jesus' search and rescue team. When you became a Christian, you were called to become part of the search and rescue team of Jesus. The reason that some of us aren't out there searching and the reason some of us have no interest in rescuing is because our compassion has grown cold. The same compassion that was sparked white hot in Jesus to go, I'm knocking down the rules. I'm pushing down the barriers. It's not alive in us. We look at the labels. We look at the barriers. Oh, here's some of the barriers. Politically, I'm different than that person. Political divisiveness. I have compassion for the other side politically. Are you serious? Yes. 
racial issues. You look at someone's upbringing, their ethnicity, the color of their skin, their cultural background, and go like, yeah, I don't know if I can't, all right? Social, cultural, people of different ages, economic barriers, traditional barriers, all these things are barriers that have been set up to say, you can't love that person, you can't have compassion on that person, you can't talk to that person, you stick to your own. And we become all about these labels. Let me be very clear. There's only two labels that matter. Unsaved, lost, going to hell, don't know Jesus. Saved, found, going to heaven, know Jesus. Those are the only two labels that matter. So many of you are fighting battles that don't matter. And you're letting these barriers and these labels prevent you from people who are far worse off than a bunch of boys in a cave. I don't think we believe that if your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your neighbor, your friend, your coworker dies today, they go to hell. You don't believe it. Because if you did, the compassion would burn bright. Has Jesus taught us to love those who are different than us or not? Who's teaching you not to love people because they're different? It's not Jesus. The compassion of Christ has to burn bright and hot, and it has to waken us up. It has to waken me up. It has to wake you up. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you're like, what just happened? This is what I need you to hear. God loves you more than you'll ever know. God wants to spend forever with you more than you'll ever know. You've made no mess he can't pick up. You've made no decision he can't forgive. He loves you. He wants you. He has compassion for you. He sent out the ultimate search and rescue mission for you and for the ones you love. So here's our responses today. If you're a follower of Christ, if you call yourself a Christian, would you ask the Lord to grow your compassion, please? Can we start there? Lord, would you grow my compassion? Some of you are thinking, I'm pretty compassionate, like I'm a 10. On a 1 to 10, I'm a 10. Awesome. Ask Jesus to make you a 20. Some of you are like, on the compassion scale, I'm kind of like a 2. I know I should be a 10. Say, Lord, can we just start with like a 4.5? Can you make me a 6? Can you trend me toward 10, but can we start somewhere along the way? For those of you who don't know Christ, I invite you to respond to the one who's come to rescue you. Stop playing games with your soul. Stop dismissing the reality of eternity. Stop missing out on the joy of walking with the one who made you and loves you most. Respond to his invitation. Let's stop talking about Jesus. Let's spend a few minutes talking to Jesus, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for having compassion for us. Lord, we are unworthy. We don't deserve you, your heaven, your forgiveness, your cross, your love. We don't deserve it. But you came and rescued us. Thank you. For those of you who are followers of Christ, verse 13 of Luke 7 said, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Would you take a moment 
to ask God to give you a greater compassion for the person or the people you have a hard time having compassion for? Would you fill in that blank for a minute? Would you say, Lord, give me a greater compassion for, and fill in the blank of that person or that people that do not know Christ that need help. Would you just pray that for a minute, please? There are barriers that are keeping your mouth shut. There are barriers that are keeping your hands closed. There are barriers that are keeping your feet still. What are they? Would you ask the Lord, would you take a minute and ask the Lord to help you break through that barrier? Just call that barrier out in your own heart. Say, Lord, help me break through this barrier to reach that person, to pray for them, to love them, to share with them. If you don't know Christ, you have a couple opportunities. One, you can let this moment pass. Keep trying it on your own. I don't advise that. You can finally wave the white flag. (laughs) You finally surrender to the one who loves you most and has the greatest compassion for you, who came and died on the cross for you. You can say something like this to Jesus. You can say, Jesus, I admit that I'm stranded and I'm broken and I'm sinful. I can't earn your love. I can't earn your forgiveness. But today I believe like the centurion, I take a step of faith and trust you today as Savior. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. I'm yours. And I commit my life to following you. Help me to learn and grow in my new relationship with you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. We all sit together. Amen. If you've given your life to Jesus today, if you're online and you give your life to Christ, you can get in touch with us by emailing us at connect at cvconline.org.